I appreciate the prayer, Stephen. I'll take all the prayer I can get because it is a huge privilege and humbling thing to be able to handle God's word. And my prayer is that through this message, you would not hear my words because I don't have much to offer, but that you would hear the word of God and submit to him. He is the one on the throne. He's the one we give glory to. He's the one we worship and he's the one we honor. And we're privileged to be able to hear his word today. I'm gonna start us off with a quick story though. I'll get a little off track to get us prepared for the message. You see, when I was a teen, I had a lot of responsibilities in my home. I, I guess I have responsibilities as an adult too, but it's a little different. Now I do them to my own benefit before I did them at my parents' command. <laughs> when I was a teen though, I had responsibilities that my father had given me around the house because I was living there for free. So I had to do chores. There are teens in the crowd. You're probably gonna hear this story and grumble because you know when you go home, you're gonna get a talking to. And you parents are gonna be leaving this story joyful. But I'm sharing this. When I was a teenager, I wasn't the most obedient teenager. I wasn't a bad kid, but I didn't like following orders. As an adult, I still don't like following orders. But I was really bad as a teen. So my dad gave me some instructions, and one of the, the chores that I had around the house was mowing the lawn. I don't like mowing the lawn, okay? I have allergies. I'm a very sensitive guy. My skin breaks out when grass touches it. It's awful. It's awful. My dad didn't care because I had to mow the lawn. <laughs> and, I, and, and I did. However, my dad was very thorough in his instruction for mowing the lawn. He had a specific way he wanted it done. You dads know. You're particular when you give instructions because you have a certain way you want it done. And when you give instructions to your teens, you want them to do it the way that you have it planned. Why? Because your way is the right way. <laughs> right? I'm glad all dads understand. <laughs> However, my dad gave me these instructions, but I wasn't very obedient, so he was very specific. He would say, look, when you mow the lawn, I have some specific things you need to follow. You see, our lawnmower is not very good. My dad would pick up a lawnmower at a yard sale for like 30 bucks and then restore it best he could, and then it was my job to use this rinky-dink lawnmower to get the lawn done. So one of the rules for mowing the lawn was not to go too fast, because if you go too fast, then it gets clogged up in there. The, the grass that's being sucked up can't shoot out fast enough. And so then it gets clogged up and then there's an issue and it could damage the lawnmower, yada, yada. So my dad told me don't go too fast. There was a specific pace I had to go at. For a man who doesn't want to mow the lawn, I wanted to get it done quickly. So I didn't listen to that very well. Another was that one of his uh, specific instructions was to, to be careful and mindful of the edges. Okay, when I'm cutting on the edges, if I, I don't get close enough, I'm going to have to get the weed whacker out and, and make sure that it's low enough on the edges because the lawnmower just can't get in all the crevices. And if I don't weed whack it, then it doesn't look pretty, and then my dad's upset. All that big deal, right? And if there's anything I hate more than mowing the lawn, it's weed whacking. So I did, definitely didn't want to do that part. Another instruction was make sure you, you keep on it, right? You can't just allow your lawn to grow for weeks because then it gets too tall and then the job is going to be too difficult and it could break this rinky-dink lawnmower. This isn't a lawnmower ready for tall grass. So if I don't keep up with it on a weekly basis, the lawn gets out of control, dad gets mad. Makes sense. Another one of the commands was... Uh, if it was, he knew the forecast. See, my dad works construction, and every morning he would wake up at six, and he'd leave for work, but because he worked construction, he knew what the weather was going to be like. He knew the weather well, and he would let me know what the weather was. So if I was going to mow the lawn that day, he would wake me up before he leaves and say, hey, just so you know, 
10.32, there's a forecast for rain. Better have it done before then. And that was, you know, he had to make sure that I knew because I wasn't going to check the weather. So he would give me these specific instructions, and sure enough, he would go to work, and I would not listen. I would get the lawn done because I knew when my dad comes home, the lawn needs to be done so that I don't get in trouble. I need it to look good. So sometimes if I knew he was coming home at five, I'd say, all right, three o'clock, about time to get started. I'd waste my whole day until then. I'd move really quickly. And even though my dad warned me not to move too fast because it would clog up the lawnmower, it would clog it up. And me, I had a strategy for this. Okay, I was prepared. I'd be pushing. It stops mowing and, and it starts you know, getting a little stuttery. And I'm like, all right, so I just bang it up and down. <laughs> and the grass falls out and I keep on going. It's also not good for a rinky-dink lawnmower. But I had, I had methods. I had strategies to get around these specific instructions. And the dilemma was... I was not fully obeying my father's instructions. But I would act as though I did. He'd come home and he knew when I didn't follow his instructions. He could see because he knew the lawn was supposed to be done a specific way. And so he would look at it and he'd say, I see those piles of, uh, of chunks of weird grass. You were, you were hitting the lawnmower up and up, weren't you? You didn't weed whack over there. That's not completely done. Did you wait until the rain hit? Because the grass didn't cut correctly. It was wet. You can't cut the grass in the rain. It's wet. What are you doing? And he would know as soon as he got home. And then the worst part was, you know this feeling. Dad comes home. He sees some of the stuff wasn't done completely. And he walks in. And I'm acting like I did a good job, you know. I'm sitting on the couch. I cut the lawn. I'm good. He walks in. You didn't do what I asked. You know what? I'll do it myself. And then he goes out and he angrily gets the lawnmower and he probably did more damage after that because you know, he's wrestling it around and he finishes the job for me. Any of you relate to that story? I'm sorry, anyone underage in the crowd. You're going to deal with this when you go home. I share this story because obedience is difficult. Obedience isn't about just getting the same end result that you think you had in the beginning. The, the point of obedience is respecting the wishes of the one giving the instruction. You see, if I truly trusted that my father knew what he was talking about and had figured out the process, if I trusted in him and if I obeyed him and if I honored him, I would have followed every specific instruction he gave. But I tried to pass off my disobedience as partial obedience. You know what I mean? Well, I got it done, so who cares? Well, he cares. It didn't show love for him. It didn't honor him. It didn't respect him. And in reality, I thought I knew better than him. See, in 1 Samuel 15, which is where we're going to be today, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15, we deal with a similar situation where Saul, the king at the time, is given specific instruction by God, and he doesn't fully obey. And in reality, it's disobedience. Now, mankind has always struggled with obedience since the garden. When Adam and Eve were given the garden, they were given a specific instruction that was do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they tried to wiggle around that command, and they tried to make excuses, and you see the fall of mankind because of it. Throughout scripture, we see men like Saul, which we're going to talk about today, who struggle with disobedience. And in today's age, we too, can fall into this trap and struggle with disobedience. Obedience is hard. And it's not fun always. But obedience is about trusting God. See, the big difference between the story I told and what we're about to read now is my dad's fallible. 
when you're in a job and you have to listen to your boss, it is important that you listen to their specific instruction, but your boss is also fallible. But God is not. And so when God gives specific instruction, we need to trust that what he says is right and good and for the best. And if we disobey, we think we know better. Let's pray. Lord, I come to you today humbly because you are God. And we are simply your creation. There is no one like you. You are holy. You are set apart. You're the creator. No one else has created the way that you did. No one else has authority the way that you have. No one else dictates right and wrong. Only you do, God, and we submit to you. Today, as we dive into your word, as we see examples of disobedience in the past, I pray that you open up our hearts to see the areas that we're not obedient to you, Lord. Grow us in our love for you that results in obedience to you because we trust you, God. We love you. You are the one on the throne. You are mighty and good. Bless us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So here in 1 Samuel 15, Saul is given instruction from Samuel that comes from God. Samuel speaks on God's behalf. And he says this to King Saul in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him, but put to death both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Utterly destroy them. This is a difficult command. Now it's a command that was given to King Saul because he was representing the nation of Israel. So it functions a little differently. God would not command us to do a similar thing because we are in a different period of time. However, he gave this instruction to Saul for a purpose. Now the the command might seem difficult at first and, and somewhat cruel. He's commanding Saul as the leader of the nation to go completely wipe out the Amalekites. All of them. Even the children. This is hard to deal with. However, this is a fulfillment of God's righteous judgment. You see, God is good. God is righteous God is patient. God is slow to anger. These are all facts that we know about God and we need to keep in our minds and our hearts as we see his commands and his judgment that's poured out because it's never pretty when God's judgment is delivered. And his judgment always comes because of an unrepentant heart. His judgment comes because of wickedness. His judgment comes because of sin. His judgment comes because God will defend the weak. He will defend the poor. And back in Exodus 17, that's when the Amalekites were first introduced. You see, Israel was being led out of Egypt to the promised land. And in their travels, in their journeys, the Amalekites came against Israel. Innocent, poor, weak people. The Amalekites came against them. And the Lord promises in Exodus 17, he says to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. Basically, write this down and let everyone past you, let it generation to generation know this, that I will utterly blot out 
the memory of Amalek from under heaven. The Lord has sworn the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. So God's judgment was promised in Exodus 17. However, there's a big period of time before that and where we are now in 1 Samuel. There's a reason there was a big period of time. You see, God, on many other occasions in the Old Testament, he speaks prophetically about judgment that will come on a people. However, it's always caveated by the fact that God is willing to relent his judgment if repentance occurs. How do I know this? I'm not just making a statement here. You see, in in the book of Nahum, the prophet Nahum speaks judgment on the city of Nineveh. Promise judgment that will come. He doesn't mention if you repent, then the Lord will relent. He just speaks of the promised judgment to come. Now, who else spoke to the city of Nineveh? Jonah. That's right. And you see, the prophet Jonah, his message had nothing to do with repentance to Nineveh, if you remember. His message was, Nineveh, I've come here, and in this certain amount of days, the Lord is going to tear you down. That was his, like, gospel presentation. It's an awful presentation. (laughs) All he speaks of is God's judgment that will come. Now, what happens is, Nineveh repents. He didn't say, if you repent, the Lord will forgive you. He just said, judgment's going to come. And in Jonah, Nineveh does repent. They realize, wait, if judgment's to come, we need to do something. We need to fix our relationship with God. And so they come before, uh, as a nation, their king uh, tells them, all right, put on some sackcloth and ashes, and we are going to repent. We're going to fast. Our whole city's going to fast. Everyone's going to fast. Why? Because we're calling on the Lord to forgive us. And you know what he does? He relents. He forgives them, and he does not pass his judgment that he promised on those days. It does not mean that God goes back on his promises. That's not what this is entailing. What this means is judgment is always conditional to the heart. And the Lord is patient, slow to anger, and forgiving to a repentant heart. This is important because when we do see God's judgment fulfilled... We know it's under the circumstance that the people he's judging were unrepentant. They were not willing to repent for their wickedness, but they kept on in their wickedness, and more and more people were harmed. And so God, in his righteousness, in his judgment, passes judgment on those people. That's why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. It's why the flood occurred. So here we see God's patience, that he has not wiped out the Amalekites yet, but he gives the command to Saul, Saul, as king of Israel, you are to fulfill my judgment. That's a big command. That's not a simple Saul, I'm sending you out to battle so that you can win a victory and look good in front of the people. This is a Saul, you are carrying out my holy, righteous judgment. Understand your position. You may be the king, but I'm God. This should be taken somberly. This should be taken very hesitantly and with reverence and fear. But Saul does not have reverence to this command. Instead, he hurriedly and quickly prepares for battle and goes out to wipe out the Amalekites. And what we end up seeing is that Saul only somewhat obeys God's command. So in verse 4, he does gather his armies. He prepares 200,000 foot soldiers 10,000 men of Judah, he comes to the city of Amalek and he sets up an ambush. And so this isn't just a simple, I'm going to go out trusting the Lord. This is, no, I got a plan. Look at my military strategy. 
He sets up an ambush on the Amalekites. And then he, he sees the Kenites. You see, the Kenites were a people who were amongst the Amalekites, but the Kenites were kind to Israel. And so this is something good that Saul does. He says to the Kenites, go depart, go down from the Amalekites, so that I do not destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to the sons of Israel. And so we see how Saul's, he's somewhat obeying, he's doing some good things. And then he goes and we're told that he defeats the Amalekites in verse 7. He carried out God's plan, he did the job. However, in verse 8, we're told he captured Agag the king of the Amalekites alive. What was God's command? Utterly destroy everyone. He not only takes the king back to Israel, but in verse 9, Saul and the people, they spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs. All that was good. They plundered. They took some rewards for their battle back to Israel. Now, what was God's command? Destroy everything, including the sheep, the oxen, all the people. Does that mean the king? Yes. Does that mean the the really nice-looking sheep? Yes. And the purpose behind this is God's trying to show this is not a battle in which I'm trying to, to let Israel and Saul get some kind of glory or praise. This is my judgment. The purpose of this is not for Saul to look good or for the people to have good, good animals. The purpose of this is I am fulfilling my righteous judgment. They missed the purpose. And because of that, Saul disobeyed God. Partial obedience is disobedience. It makes you think, why would he spare the king and the animals? Well, if you look at the context of where we're at in the past few weeks, we've seen this downward spiral for Saul. He's begun thinking highly of himself, and he starts disobeying God and doing things incorrectly, and and because of that, God had promised through Samuel that he would raise up another man who's after his own heart to be king. And last week, we talked about how Jonathan went out to battle the Philistines while Saul was sitting under a pomegranate tree. He wasn't fulfilling his responsibility as king. And so by the end of that chapter, what we didn't mention last week is the nation of Israel had actually taken votes on who they prefer. At the end of 14, they cast lots between Jonathan and Saul, and who do you think they liked better? It was Jonathan. And so coming to this chapter, Saul is dealing with this fear of losing his support from God. He's losing his support from the people. He's losing his popularity, which was the reason he was picked in the first place. Remember, he's a tall, handsome man. And all that is crumbling down in front of him. And so when God gives him this command, he doesn't think to himself, oh, wow, thank you, Lord. I am here to follow you. I'm so privileged to be able to do your will. His first thought is, I'm ready to get my favor back. Because Saul had put himself on the throne that God deserves. And so for us, I kind of want to bring this around as we we continue on the story. Let's consider what are some areas that the Lord instructs us that are hard for us to obey. I say us because I'm dealing, I'm speaking on a lot of issues that I struggle with. Thinking about this context of, do I fully obey what God says, or do I just partially obey and make excuses? Consider this. I'm going to speak a few instructions that the Lord gives us that are not easy, but are important for us trusting God. In Matthew 5.42, 
Jesus says, give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Maybe sometimes I do that. But do I have a generous heart of giving? When someone comes to me in need, do I right away want to help them or do I doubt them? Do I struggle because I I think they have ulterior motives? Do I question them or do I consider, well, they might be in need, but I also really like eating out. (laughs) And in reality, if if I was seeking the Lord honestly on this, then... I would say I have not fully obeyed that. Now, this isn't a call to perfection, by the way, church. I hope you're not feeling that. Um, None of us are to be perfect, but I want us to consider the instructions that God gives us and really wrestle in our hearts, am I actually following that? Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, God says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. (sighs) Do I fully obey that? Am I prepared when a person slanders me and gossips about me to love them? What does that even look like? Does it mean that I begrudgingly pray for them? Lord, you better humble their hearts. Is that, is that real unconditional love? Sometimes I struggle with what unconditional love looks like. Jesus was beaten and spit on and mocked. And the way that he showed love is very different than what I imagine I would do. And so I'm burdened by this when I, I see this. I'll tell you, as I'm speaking these things, preparing this message was very difficult because the Lord has been convicting my heart. How much do I obey? James 5.16, this one really hits home. We're told, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, at first, this might seem simple. We know that we're to confess our sins. In fact, we're told if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now, I'll tell you, that part's a little easier for me. Why? Because I love grace. I love the benefits of grace. I love the freedom and the joy that I get to live in where I don't have to live in guilt and shame, but I can actually rest in the Lord because he paid for my sins, right? That's beautiful. It's wonderful. However, when I confess my sins to God, it's a little easier because he already knows my sins. But he commands us to confess our sins to one another. That's harder because you may not know the sins that I'm dealing with. And if I share my sins with you, your view of me might change. And I have a fear, especially as a a guy who's doing ministry, I'm preaching from a pulpit, I have a fear of looking inadequate. I have a fear of looking imperfect. I have a fear of people thinking lower of me than, than I wish they thought of me. And because of that fear of man, I struggle to confess my sins to my brothers and sisters. And I partially obey by confessing my sins to God and saying, Lord, I know you've covered them, so I'm good. But he's commanded us to confess to one another. Why? Not because we judge one another, but because that's where healing comes from. And remember, God's commands are for a purpose. And if I trust that purpose, then I'm going to obey. And so if I trust this, I trust that when I confess my sins to another who loves Jesus, then there is grace. And when that sin is brought to light to others, now there's accountability. 
Now there's help. Now there's healing. You see, I can't handle my sin on my own. I may try to say, well, I got my relationship with God, so I'm good, but the Lord's telling me, this is how I'm giving you, I'm giving you the tools to handle your sin, and when you don't obey this, you're pridefully living in your sin and accepting it. An addict needs healing. What sin is in your heart today that maybe has been unconfessed? On a regular basis, I need to come back to this. But this is hard. And it's hard because obedience is not easy, but we want to understand what true obedience is. Obedience is not an outward appearance or an act that earns us some kind of holiness. Obedience is an act of love. You see, in John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so what we know about obedience is it's a response of a heart that loves God. I obey because I truly believe and I I love God that he loved me and I know that what he tells me is best for me, even when I don't feel good. Even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, I know that the result is good. And so obedience is a response of that love and the Lord desires obedience from us. He desires it. And so we get to honor and glorify God by obeying. The fact that we get to give back anything is a privilege in itself, but by obeying, we get to express our joy for the Lord, and he is honored. You see, in verse 22, Samuel speaks to Saul, and he says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Now, Samuel isn't saying here that sacrifice is bad. In fact, we know throughout all of scripture that sacrifice is a good thing. If it wasn't for Jesus' sacrifice, we wouldn't have our sins forgiven. If it wasn't for the sacrifice of the lambs, then the Old Testament believers wouldn't, it was a way that they expressed their faith in God. And so when we sacrifice, we sacrifice to one another and for God for specific things, and he uses that. Sacrifice is good, but when sacrifice is done as an outward appearance, an act for holiness without the heart, then it loses its purpose. And so when he speaks of obedience, he's not speaking of the outward appearance. That's what the sacrifice is. The obedience is the reflection of the heart. And so the Lord desires our heart more than he desires our outward appearance. I could be in church every Sunday preaching from a pulpit. You know, there's, there's people like me who we get opportunities to preach and teach and follow God this way, but maybe in our hearts we're not actually confessing and obeying God. I'm confessing that to you to keep me accountable. And believer, you can struggle with that too because our flesh is weak. But the Lord wants our heart. He wants us to desire him. In verse 23, he continues on, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. This gets to the root of what the problem is. When I don't fully obey God, when I only partially obey and I make excuses, the root of my problem is pride. In fact, he compares it to idolatry. The reason he does that is because instead of God being on the throne, I put myself on the throne, and I'm the idol of my life. I don't obey because I think that I know better than God. Oh my goodness. Lord, humble me. And we need to be constantly coming to the Lord for that humility. 
surrendering, Lord, reveal to me where my pride is. Reveal to me where I'm not obeying you. Lord, I know I'm not going to be perfect. Forgive me. But as I grow in my love for you, as I seek out Jesus, Lord, reveal to me how I can obey. Obedience doesn't earn salvation. It's a response of it. It's a heart response of our love for God. So Saul, what we're going to examine here real quick is that he was full of pride. Now, as we talk through how he was full of pride, I want us to notice in our hearts, right, seek the Lord, Lord, reveal to me where I also struggle with this because we also can struggle with these things. And if we're not careful, that pride escalates. If we don't constantly seek the Lord on this, that pride will grow and grow and become worse and worse until we end up against God. So Saul, after he finished that battle, do you know the first thing he did was? We're told in verse 12, he set up a monument for himself. This was not a battle for you, Saul. This was God's judgment on a wicked people, and you set up a monument for yourself? That is the opposite of glorifying God. We already see where his heart's at. How easy it is when we, when we do good things, how often we desire praise, how easy it is to accept the, the glory or the praise. And I'll tell you, as a preacher, it's hard. And everyone else who gets on the pulpit, they struggle with it too. Because when we get done, if you give us any compliments, that can go right to our heads. Now, I pray to the Lord, and I'm, I'm grateful when you encourage us because there is beauty in that. I take it as encouragement. I take it as, as love from you and support from you, and I thank you for that. But I'm only able to do this because of Christ. And it's the Spirit who leads, and we want to stay humble, but this, the temptation to desire praise, that when I'm preparing a sermon, the desire might be, oh, I want to sound good. I want to sound profound. I need to come up with a statement that really is going to give them a zinger and bring it home. Maybe I want to be funny, make the people laugh. And those temptations can come into our heart so easy. But the Lord is the one who needs the glory. He's the one who earns it. He deserves it because he did it all. And so we need to keep giving it to him. But Saul sets up a monument for himself. And then when Samuel starts coming to him in verse 13, before Samuel says anything to Saul, this is what Saul yells out to him. He says, blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. That's the first thing he said. That's like if my dad was walking in from work and before he even walks in the door, I run out, dad, I did it. I finished the lawn. And he's looking down and like, I know I didn't weed whack. He can see with his eyes I didn't weed whack. That's what Saul does here. Why? Because he's in callous denial. Believer, it is easy for us to be in callous denial when we're not obeying. It's very easy to do this. Right after that, Samuel calls him out. He's like, all right, you obeyed the command of the Lord. Then why is it I hear the bleeding of sheep in my ears? Saul, I think you're lying. <laughs> but Saul goes to defend himself in verse 15. He says, they have brought them from the Amalekites. He's blaming the people. The people brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we destroyed the rest. <laughs> you see, what Saul does here, for one, he points the finger at the people. Oh, they're the ones who captured the animals, but don't worry. 
We're using the animals to sacrifice to the Lord. And so he's passing off his disobedience as righteous and good. Can we cloud our sin with righteousness? I would say we can. How often do I try to justify my anger or my gossip? When I talk down on someone, do I justify, well, I'm just venting. There's a fine line between venting and gossip. I'm not saying I know the line perfectly. I'm letting you know I struggle with that line. (laughs) Go to a counselor for help on that. (laughs) But we need to be aware of this. Am I sinning when I'm angry? Or do I try to justify it? After that, Samuel reminds him of his position that he used to be in. He says to him in verse 17, Is it not true, though, you were little in your own eyes? You were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission to go and utterly destroy the sinners. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? But you rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What he does is he reminds him, Saul, you know, you used to be really humble. If you remember as we've walked through 1 Samuel, when he was first appointed king, Saul was not a prideful man. In fact, he was pretty godly. His response was, me? Are you sure? He's a tall, handsome, strong man, but he was humble. He, He felt little in his own eyes, correctly so. But as time went on in the position, as time went on with all the praise and glory that he received as king, as time went on, feeling the power of being king, he became big in his own eyes. Believer, we need to stay little in our own eyes. The one who's big is God. And I pray and I hope that you pray for me that the Lord would never make me big in my own eyes. And I pray for you that the Lord would not make you big in your own eyes. Going on, in verse 15, 21, and 30, Saul has this phrase that's a bit interesting. He says, we got these animals to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He does that three times. He says to Samuel, we did this for the Lord your God. He doesn't say our God. He doesn't say my God. There's a reason because at this point, Saul is not trusting God. In fact, he's come to the point that three times in this chapter, he rejects God as God. And because of that rejection, because of his heart, the Lord is going to reject Saul as king. See, after this, in verses 23, we see Samuel tells him, because you rejected the the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Verse 26, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Verse 28, because Samuel's uh, Saul's so desperate, he keeps trying to win back. No, 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 I'm sorry, I repent. But it's not even true repentance. He doesn't say, I've done wickedly. He says, no, I repent. I know that I've sinned, but the people made me do it. No, come on, let, let me be forgiven so that I might look good. He doesn't even truly repent. And so finally in verse 28, Samuel says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Three times he rejected God and God rejects him as king. Now, what I don't want you to think is, wow, when I'm disobedient, is the Lord going to reject me? If you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. There is grace. What the Lord is calling us to is a repentant heart. You see, Saul wasn't repentant. But we see another person in scripture who does deny God three times. Do you know who that is? 
Peter. Peter, when Christ was taken, three times he denied Jesus. But he didn't try to defend his actions. You see, Peter's response was sorrow and pain, agony. He felt so awful that he rejected Jesus three times, his Savior. And what what happens because of his repentant heart is that God, through Jesus, restores Peter three times. You see that, that contrast? The unrepentant heart, rejected by God. The repentant heart, God restores. Because of our sin, we are separated from God, but when we trust in him, when we repent and turn to him for salvation, we are restored. But for those who stay in their sin and they don't trust God and they don't receive salvation by accepting Jesus, they're rejected by God. That's not God's desire, but he wants a repentant heart. And so God regrets that he, makes Saul, he made Saul king. He rejects him. But what it tells us is that the Lord desires a broken, humble, surrendered heart to him. It reminds me of Psalm 51, where David cries out, it is a broken and contrite heart that you desire, Lord, not sacrifice. You want my heart to be broken before you, broken over my sin, broken over my disobedience, not leading to guilt or some kind of holiness that I can somehow achieve by following all the commands. No, this should lead to a dependence on the one who paid for your sins. Believers, Christ fully obeyed God. In his life, he did everything that God asked of him. We're told that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Because of Christ's obedience, mankind has salvation. Because of Christ's obedience, my sin doesn't have to be put on my account. Because of Christ's obedience, I am forgiven, I am freed, I am given joy, and I'm given peace that nothing else in the world can give me. And if I stray away from that, I am missing the one who should be on the throne, which is Jesus. He's done it all, and so my obedience is just a response to what he's done. He's done it all. He paid for our sins Believers, are you half obeying the Lord today? Are you making excuses for your disobedience? Are you struggling with pride in a similar way that Paul does and and that escalates and it escalates? You can nip it in the butt now because Jesus has paid for that. You don't have to live in that. Your flesh is trying to lead you to yourself and yourself honoring and glorifying, but the spirit in you is trying to lead you in honoring the Father and reminding us who's on the throne. You may deal with fear of man and approval. You may deal with a love for yourself. But Christ wants to be the number one thing that you trust in. I need to be reminded of that on a daily basis. And you need to be reminded of that on a daily basis. And that's why we take communion. Amen, if you can get ready. We take communion to remember what Christ has done to remember that he's the one who completed the work of salvation. And because of that, we are saved. We are forgiven and we get to obey and honor God by doing what he asks us to do. That isn't a chore, that is a privilege and a joy. And we do that out of a heart of love. 
And so I pray that during this time of remembering Jesus, your heart would grow in love, love for him that results in worship and honor and obedience. Man, if you would lead us.